dropping Canadian dollar, drought in California, and inconceivably low oil prices have resulted in a convergence with a mind-bending implication. Our first ever Canadian cauliflower crisis. Unspeakable just months earlier, cauliflower now tips the scales at $8 a head. No joking matter, this bizarre turn of events puts the accessibility of food and the volatility of our food supply into sharp focus. For example, have you ever considered the journey of a tomato? Yes, tomatoes, <laughs> that highly delicate, perishable fruit that travels vast distances across international borders, sometimes some 3,000 kilometers, that's the distance between Mexico to Canada, to end up on your pasta or in your Greek salad, or sadly, accidentally really, it ends its long journey, dying a slow death, rotting in your crisper in your fridge. In her book detailing the journey of a common tomato from Mexican field to Canadian kitchen table, and importantly, the workers who play a role along the way, Dr. Deb Barnt from York University asks a simple, maybe obvious question. Where does food come from? As the distance between production and consumption has become vast, this is a question many of us can only answer in the vaguest terms. But the cauliflower crisis makes it a question that it is difficult to ignore. You could say I am a bit preoccupied with livability in cities. Well, I'd like to propose that in order to ensure the sustainability of city life, we need to rethink where we get our food, how food is produced, and where food will come from in the future. After all, we all eat, and we must eat, in the future too. The truth is, I'm not much of a gardener, or a cook for that matter, although I come from a strong tradition of gardening. My sister has an organic farm, and my 95-year-old grandmother still personally tends, with great pride, her collection of flowers and vegetables in her backyard, marveling anew year after year over her yield. While I have an idea of how much work is involved, the reality is my hands aren't very dirty. So I bring that as a bit of a qualifier to the discussion that follows. I come to this discussion of food in cities as a human that eats and as a policy planner. As a land use planner specifically, it's clear to me that our land use policy and food production in cities, those two things have been severed for too long. As a case in point, between 50 to 60% of all food consumed in my city in Toronto is imported, mostly from California, Florida, and Mexico. I can't imagine that your city is much better. But here is an even more sobering thought. By some estimations, our largest cities with dense populations of human life are only three days away from a food shortage. Should we be storing food in cities? Should we be supplementing our food supply in cities through local production? I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. This episode will explore where our food comes from and raise some critical questions about better integrating food production into city life. 
The average American meal travels 1,500 miles from field to table, using 10 times more energy than the caloric value of the food itself. As our climate changes and we swing from extreme drought to flooding in so many parts of the world, limited access to water will increasingly compromise the viability of agribusiness and the international approach to our food supply, which governs food production today. My name is Evan Fraser. Dr. Evan Fraser is the current Canadian Research Chair in Global Food Security in the Department of Geography at the University of Guelph. His interest in agriculture and food systems was spurred by watching Canadian farmers let their crops rot because the cost of harvesting was higher than the cost of importing from the southern U.S. and Mexico. A few years ago, a British politician announced that civilization is only nine meals away from anarchy. The aftermath of Hurricane Katrina or the panicked buying in British supermarkets during the truck driver strike of 10 years ago illustrate how quickly things can unravel when our food systems are threatened. Then there are the greenhouse gas emissions associated with food transportation. Producing 10% of our own veggies would be the same as taking 8,000 cars off the road in a city like Toronto. All this sounds like a strong argument in favor of local food. At least this is the conclusion that I drew, but the world is actually a lot more complicated. For instance, let's consider two apples. One is produced in New Zealand and shipped to Canada by boat, where the other is produced in Ontario and stored in a refrigerator for nine or 10 months. During that time, not only do you have to run the refrigerator, but you also have to count on the 20% of the apples going bad. Scientists have tried to count up all the greenhouse gas emissions associated with these two apples and conclude that it would be preferable to eat the locally grown apple within four months of harvest and import from elsewhere in the world during the rest of the year. Similarly, it seems that lamb produced in New Zealand and shipped by boat to England can be produced with fewer greenhouse gases than lamb produced in the UK where sheep are fed corn in the winter. The list goes on. In other words, the data is contradictory and we face a conundrum. There doesn't seem to be clear guidance for those of us who wish to support a healthier, more sustainable and secure food system. Clearly, the future will demand that we mitigate this inefficiency by producing food at least a little bit closer to home. Several years ago, following a rancorous debate in a West Coast city about backyard chickens, I was working as a consultant at the time, I arrived home to my children and announced, or predicted rather, that before they grew up and left for university, we would have chickens in a coop in our modest urban backyard. I have to admit, I was a bit gleeful at the thought of fresh eggs every morning. I was nostalgically remembering reaching my arm into the stuffy, earthy henhouse at my grandmother's country home to retrieve warm eggs as a child. I recalled cradling that precious cargo, one egg, maybe two, three if we were really lucky, in my sweaty little palms as I carefully, slowly walked the short distance to the kitchen. My children, of course, responded to my proclamation with alarm and maybe even revulsion. To their very urban sensibilities, there was something downright uncouth about my proposal of chickens chirping and pooping in our backyard. You see, they've been raised in a world where the production and consumption of food has been fundamentally severed. In proposing to bring them together, the idea of waking up in the morning and grabbing the egg from the chicken instead of from a carton in the fridge, seemed just not right. Of course, the opposite is true. 
There is something just not right about not knowing where your food comes from. And of course, as we have just learned from Dr. Fraser, there are risks. But I'll get into that a little bit later. Currently, as we've established, most food travels vast distances to get to the populations for which it was grown. This is for a simple reason. In many places of the world, we have not hesitated to gobble up valuable agricultural land in close proximity to where people live so that they can live. Planning is often about negotiating interests, playing one off another. But really, can people live without food? In light of the cauliflower crisis, we need to take a second look at food in cities. Over the course of the past hundred years, there has been much ado about the possibility of a future where the vast majority of our food is produced in vertical farms that stretch upwards towards the sky. To me, a future where some type of stacked greenhouse farming exists in cities is conceivable. The need to bring food closer to the people who consume it, as transportation costs continue to rise and as fuel costs become less and less fashionable, will drive this change forward. Imagine skyscrapers gleaming in green, rising above our cities, resulting in food production on a fraction of the footprint or the land area that is required today by farms. You could stop by the local produce shop in the base of one of these towers and purchase food harvested that day on your way home from work, on site. Costly food storage facilities avoided transport trucks littering our highways, moving food from coast to coast, no longer. From an environmental science, engineering, and hydroponics point of view, the technology exists to make vertical farming a reality. And a fundamental premise of vertical farming is that food production can and will be transformed in the future. But we've already established that something needs to change. So what's the holdup? Well, the extra cost of building, lighting, heating, and powering the vertical farms raises questions about the economic viability of farming in the sky in most cities of the world. You know, simply put, vertical farming isn't cheap. But just as cities reach a tipping point wherein it is more desirable, economical even, to put parking underground, is there a similar tipping point when it comes to growing food in the sky? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. But questions about the environmental desirability of vertical farming also persist. Given the infrastructure required, it's likely that in the foreseeable future, farms in the sky will continue to be more carbon intensive than ground-oriented farming. You know, and if this is so, then what's the point? Vertical farming, when positioned as an agribusiness, seems to fall prey to the same problematic assumptions as industrialized farming. A key assumption is that we cannot or will not take responsibility for producing our own food. Another key assumption is that food production will continue to be or should be an infrastructure-intensive for-profit enterprise that requires significant capital outlay. 
I would like to suggest that this is an assumption worth challenging. Dr. Fraser puts it this way. In my opinion, there are four key areas that policymakers and society in general need to be considering to address future food security challenges. The first is we need to invest in the science of boosting production. But this isn't an uncritical and mindless boosting of production. We need to ensure we boost production in a sustainable way, by which I mean we need to steward our inputs of water, fertilizer, and pesticide to make sure we produce the maximum amount of food with the minimum environmental impact. Second, we need to do a better job of supporting local food systems in and around our cities. Not because local food systems are going to feed all of us all of the time, Indeed, there's too many people in our cities for us to entirely depend on a local diet. Instead, we need to be thinking of local food systems as a backup plan when our main plans fail. This means we need to be investing a portion of our buying habits into the local food system in order to protect the farms and the farmers in and around our cities. Not only will this provide food security benefits, it will also provide non-market benefits such as protecting biodiversity, better connecting producers and consumers, and in general enriching the life and environment of our urban areas. Third, we need to do a better job of storing food. This represents another line of defense when our main crops fail or when our main food systems fail. Both local food and food storage represents a defense mechanism against the vagaries of the international market. Finally, we need to be doing a better job of policy and regulation on the environmental and social costs of food. Today, our market system assumes that the price the consumer pays for food and other products reflects the cost of producing it, but there are too many hidden environmental and social costs that go into our food production and food consumption patterns that need to be included. For instance, farmers and consumers need to pay for the energy and carbon emissions that their food entail. We need to be doing a better job of paying for the water our food uses in production. If we can start paying for these negative social and environmental problems associated with food, then our food system will become more sustainable. It's also true that when we begin to think of food production on a more micro scale, the opportunity of organic food also becomes more likely. This leads us to the most micro scale of all, backyard and container farming. Urban agriculture or urban farming might be thought of as a continuum from backyards to community gardens to commercial production at a whole variety of scales, small, medium, and large. Remember that chicken I was hoping for in my backyard to the chagrin of my kids? It's quite likely that the future will better integrate local agriculture, backyard, and neighborhood gardening if that's the future we choose. I'm not prepared to go so far as to say that we will only live off the produce of our own backyards. But according to university professor Dr. David Gordon, author of Suburban Nation, Two-thirds of the Canadian population lives in suburbs, which are generally, by definition, low-density housing tracts surrounded by land around both tower neighborhoods, in backyards, and under hydro lines. We must consider, do these suburbs represent an opportunity with respect to our future food supply? I recall visiting a family friend a few years ago in a suburb north of Toronto. With great delight, his elderly father took me out to his modest backyard to a gap in the fence that we both gingerly crawled through. He was an immigrant from Italy and worked in construction by day. But his evenings he spent in this hydro corridor on the other side of his backyard fence. Here, to my amazement, 
row upon row of tomato plants, neatly cultivated, unfolded across the horizon. I was a benefactor that day of his hard work tilling the soil, but I soon learned that he was a bit of a legendary, somewhat of a local hero, given that he generously supplied block after block in his suburban neighborhood, summer after summer, with his locally grown harvest. Researcher Ken Dahlberg finds that backyard harvest in the USA is $17 billion, or the equivalent of the massive corn crop produced in that agricultural superpower. There's another side to this story. In some estimations, almost 50%, now that's by weight, of household garbage is organic material, fruit and vegetable scraps, paper towels, coffee grinds, you get the idea, that could be turned into compost instead of landfill. When backyard farming becomes a part of everyday life, this waste becomes a valuable commodity. Urban organic waste could be an input into local food production. Instead of seeing organic waste as a problem, it becomes a valuable resource. Instead of trucking it away from our homes to be composted and used elsewhere, this waste could fuel, it could be an input into backyard and community gardens. Case studies are emerging out of Europe from a movement called Zero Waste, whereby all discarded materials are viewed as resources for others to use. From the Zero Waste International Alliance, we learn, Zero Waste is about designing and managing projects and processes to reduce the volume and toxicity of waste and materials. Zero Waste is also about waste prevention. For example, in some European cities, the amount of organic waste that the city will accept on behalf of a resident is limited as a way of encouraging people to produce less. But it is also about integrating something that's viewed as waste, organic materials, into existing processes. Now, rooftop farming must also be a part of this mix. This past fall, Ryerson University in the heart of downtown Toronto hosted tours of its rooftop garden showing off the infrastructure that produced more than 8,000 pounds of produce on its 929 square meter farm. With dozens of volunteers, five paid staff, and more than 500 visitors from around the city and across the country, this first season was a smashing success. Started by a group of keen students, this partnership with the administration took advantage of an existing green roof, taking it one step further to make it a rooftop farm. The food was a boon for campus food services, and they willingly integrated it into their menus. Forget the 100-mile diet. This was the manifestation of the 100-meter diet. The stage was also set for this possibility by the municipality. Toronto has the continent's first green roof bylaw. Green roofs are mandatory on new buildings since 2006, designed as an important part of Toronto's green standard, which seeks to reduce energy consumption and reduce storm runoff. Rooftop agriculture takes green roofs a step farther, adding employment, food security, and shortening the distance between food production and consumption. Initial research has concluded that rooftop growing conditions are actually similar to those on the ground. Soil quality is easily cultivated, and exposure to sunlight, of course, is intense. Rooftops, when viewed as shared, valuable spaces, become an important opportunity for food production. 
Other cities have capitalized on the opportunity presented by available land around churches, public institutions, and large companies. In Berlin, in 1996, approximately 78,000 allotment gardeners, that is community gardeners, belonged to a statewide allotment holders union. This represents one allotment garden for every 45 inhabitants in the city of 3.5 million. That's a lot of local food production. But I'd like to circle back to talk about one of the biggest challenges we continue to face in cities, that is growing poverty and the need for meaningful work. What could be more meaningful than producing food? I ask this question because it's clear that today, the very food we require to live on is treated as though it's not really worth much. This can, of course, change quickly. Without warning or the slightest provocation, they unleashed upon their innocent neighbor the full terror and fury of a devastating blitzkrieg. During the Second World War, my grandmother was pregnant with my mother and living in the city of Harlem, which was occupied by the Nazis. Food was scarce. As my grandmother, the 95-year-old gardener that I introduced to you earlier, tells it, my grandfather purchased a bushel of apples in exchange for the family silver. And he kept that bushel of apples under lock and key. Every day, the cupboard was carefully unlocked. One apple was taken from its shelves. And my grandmother was given her one precious daily apple. And she savored that apple, eating every part of it because her hunger was acute. During the occupation of Holland, my grandmother explains, the farmers became exceedingly rich. They had access to the most important, scarce commodity in society, food. Maybe this is why all those years later, my grandmother, now having spent the bulk of her life in Canada, still cherishes her garden. She knows just how priceless food can be under certain circumstances. But when we scale food production in cities back up again, from the backyard gardening to urban agriculture, whether in parks or on rooftops or in vertical greenhouses, there is an opportunity to expand the economic base of the city through production, processing, packaging, and marketing of products. This is about promoting entrepreneurial activities and the creation of good jobs as much as it is about food security. There are many social benefits that have emerged from urban agricultural practices such as overall social and emotional well-being, improved health and nutrition, increased income, employment, and of course, improvements to community social life. Urban agriculture can have a large impact on the social and emotional well-being of individuals. Like every other aspect of modern society, food production has been in a constant state of evolution. What will the future hold? Well, I have no crystal ball on this one. But there are some choices we can make. There are policies we can implement to shift our understanding and expectations around food in the city. 
Encouraging rooftop gardens, community greenhouses, and community gardens would be an excellent place to start. Better harvesting the food that already grows in cities, as promoted by the not-for-profit Not Far From The Tree, which collects produce in the city and redistributes it, would be another step forward. Integrating food-bearing plants and trees into our urban design would be another. At the end of the day, developing our own gardening skills and food production skills is another good place to start, myself included. I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. This episode was brought to you by TD Bank and Evergreen City Works. Invisible City is a product of Freeman House, a creative agency based in my beautiful city, Toronto. Each episode of Invisible City features an original score by Freeman House. This episode was written by me, Jennifer Kiesmat, and produced by Ryan Freeman. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we enjoyed creating it. Ryan and I are aiming to release an episode on the first of each month. So, you know, subscribe so that you don't miss out. All of our episodes are on our website, invisiblecitypodcast.com.